This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. How's it going, everyone? You're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Thanks for tuning in. The topic of today's show is memories, something that is near and dear to the Brain Matters crew. Well, that's because many of us here currently study learning and memory, but I'm sure that they are near and dear to you as well. Our memories are the sentences and chapters that make up our own internal autobiography, and they help us adapt to future events, informing us on what has happened in the past so we can make the best choices about what to do in the present. If you've been listening to our previous episodes of Brain Matters, and I hope you have, then you may have caught another episode of ours where we talked a little bit about memory. In that episode, I spoke with Dr. Bruce Hope, who has been working on trying to capture a snapshot of a memory, meaning a physical collection of brain cells that would be related to a single memory. To do this, Dr. Hope uses special genetically modified rats that allow for the permanent labeling of cells during a learning experience. In today's episode, I spoke with a man who has been investigating memory from a different approach. That man is Dr. Anthony Wagner, a neuroscientist at Stanford University. Dr. Wagner has been investigating mechanisms of how different brain systems coordinate to support memory. The technology he uses is a variety of recording techniques, such as fMRI and MEG, and he does so in human subjects performing memory tasks. This allows Dr. Wagner to peek under the hood, so to speak, and see which areas of the brain are activated during these tasks, as well as the magnitude of their activation. In our conversation, we got to talk about how this procedure can help answer some really interesting questions about memory, such as what our brain looks like when it forgets something, how our brain is able to make inferences, and whether or not it is possible to detect a real memory from a false memory. Let's get to it. What are some of the major questions that you have been asking in your lab and sort of the major topics that you would like to kind of try to answer in your science? Um, Sure. So, you know, I I think of you you get to my stage where I'm starting to think I'm uh, a little long in the tooth Um, (laughs) and you get to my stage and you have sort of core lab projects. Uh, core lab research questions, and then you have sort of the fun, sort of ancillary, sort of applied problems or other ways in which you're trying to stretch your science. And so for our core problems, you know, over the years, we've been focusing on how large-scale neural systems allow us to sort of transform an experience like this, sort of a unique, right, all of our life episodes are unique one-shot events, right, of a configuration of spatial elements, semantic elements, uh, et cetera. Uh, And what are the mechanisms that essentially allow us to filter or select across those elements that will allow us at some point in the future to get back to that event using partial cues, some partial overlap between the future and that moment in the past, uh, triggering in essence the reactivation, the replay of those details so you can draw on that information to guide your current thinking decision action. And so we've been focusing on how medial temporal lobe mechanisms 
uh, as well as frontal parietal mechanisms, help us build these kinds of memories, uh, episodic memories, uh, conscious memories for individual life events, as well as the mechanisms that allow us to um, reactivate or replay or reinstate them, sort of retrieve these memories. In recent years, one, one big thing that we've been focused on, and one of your colleagues, uh, Allison Preston, also is sort of uh, leading the charge here, is we're very much interested in the flexibility of these memories. Uh, in particular, uh, my lab has been interested in how we can begin to build in mind and brain these integrated event histories, these sort of autobiographical histories about how the way our different events and the things that occur across those different events actually relate to each other and they kind of get bound together and related together in memory even though they've never actually been directly experienced together in the real world. And that empowers us to sort of uh, draw um, novel inferences and understand sort of uh, uh, the way things relate uh, in the world. How do you think about memory in the brain in a, in a very abstract way? Is there any misunderstanding between how we think memory works and the way it maybe actually works from looking inside the brain? Sure. So so there are many different forms of memory, right? And so the one thing that I, w I would say that cuts across um, all these different forms of memory, uh, my lab focuses largely on episodic memory, sort of conscious memory for life events, but again, there are many different forms of memory. And I think the one thing that... Um, cuts across is uh, the idea that memory is in essence prediction, that you know that we have plasticity in the brain in order to allow us as organisms to, in essence, tune the system, uh, be shaped by our experiences such that at some point in the future we have a better predictive model about how to behave at that moment in time. Um, and so when I think about um, remembering the past at some moment in time, it's really sort of this neurobiological readout of what's likely, even though we think about we're reflecting on the past, it's actually a prediction about what's likely relevant at this moment in time for us, uh, given our past, our past experience. Actually, like peeling back the layers, is there anything that kind of like is vastly different? Or? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So, you know, my background, my training um, as an undergrad, I'm uh, trained in cognitive psychology. Um, mm -hmm. And by Oh, much over uh, you know from in my career to um, being incredibly fortunate with the mentors I've, I've had over the years, and this started actually as an undergrad. Um, it was a bit of a random walk, you know, trying to figure out first kid to college, you know, your professional school, okay, I'm pre med. I quickly realized, no, I'm not pre med. I don't really want to do that. And it was a bit of a, a random walk for a couple of years, and then I had a great um, TA for a research methods course. I was at UCLA and had a great TA, um, Michael Anderson, who is now uh, the Cambridge Brain Unit. And his uh, scientific uh, approach to trying to understand human behavior uh, seems kind of interesting. And so I bumped into him on campus um, and expressed an interest in sort of being an RA for some project. Walked into Bob York's lab. He was a, Mike was a um, graduate student at the time, walked in and just immediately fell in love with sort of thinking about the mind, thinking about the workings of the mind, um, and applying the scientific method to decompose and test competing idea, uh, hypotheses about how it is that in, that, in that particular case, how it is that we forget, what causes forgetting. So I had, I had um, very fortunate to get training from uh, Mike uh, and Bob Bjork and others at UCLA and uh, very strong training in sort of the psychology, uh, cognitive psychology of uh, memory. Uh, and then I headed off to grad school, and I'm sort of of the generation where uh, I want to say I predate functional brain imaging, but mm -hmm. I essentially predate functional brain imaging. I remember. Did you grow up uh, with it then? In yeah, that, yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I, I remember the um, 
fall before heading off to grad school, uh, Larry Squire from UC San Diego um, had swung by. It was around the Society for Neuroscience meeting in, in 91. Um, and I, I was kind of, I was an undergrad. I was clueless about all the timing of these things, but putting it back together. Um, and he was swinging through to talk about um, his new pet work not only on hippocampal correlates of episodic retrieval, but also, in essence, the first imaging study of uh, priming. And their study was a visual priming paradigm. And I remember listening in on this seminar at UCLA and just being fascinated. It was just, wow, that's amazing that, you know, you have these sort of neurobiological correlates decrease in um, um, blood flow in early visual cortices that relate to perceptual priming, visual priming phenomena. I kind of thought that was kind of cool, but I was heading off to do behavioral work. I, you know, there were very few PET scanners that were accessible for research in the States, et cetera. And so I headed off to grad school and I was very fortunate towards the end of my first year, beginning of my second year at Stanford, um, functional MRI started to come on the scene. And this was, um, in essence, fall 1993. Mm -hmm. And John, I was in John Gabrielli's lab. Um, and, um, we were in essence the first, you know, lab uh, to get up and get going to conduct fMRI studies of memory mm -hmm. in my behavioral research program. Suddenly, did it just fall in your lap? Yeah, it just transformed. Like, yeah. yeah, and you know, I think many of us at that time, you know, science it just kind of unfolds, and it unfolds not only with advances in theory, but it largely unfolds with advances in technology. And when you're on the sort of bleeding edge uh, of the technology front, and if you're fortunate to land some, you know. In, in terms of your, the timing of your career, your training on that front edge, it, it's, there's much lower hanging fruit. And so you can sort of at least make some initial progress uh, at a time where it's not as sort of densely populated. And, um, and so that's, you know, I, suddenly I was doing neuroscience, kind yeah. of neuroscience, mm -hmm. um, which was not what I thought I would be heading off to grad school to do. And what kind of things did you uh, achieve with now with this new technology that you guys had? What questions did you ask and what things did you kind of like find out? Yeah, well, we, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm a bit long in the tooth 20 years later. there, I, I'd like to think we've done a number of things, but uh, maybe I'll go back to um, the, the point I was making a moment ago, which is the um, work that I started contributing to as an undergrad um, was very much interested in what causes forgetting and why, why is it that we forget individual life uh, episodes? And we know, I mean, there's a hundred and some odd years now of um, careful behavioral science as well as neuroscience, uh, but careful behavioral science documenting the multiple causes of forgetting. You fail to attend, so you never actually really encoded it, or you learn other things that then compete with the memories that you want to get, so you didn't really lose the traces, but rather you lose access to the traces because of competition, because of interference. Mike's um, known for conducting work that provides support for an idea that had been around for a long period of time, but really was difficult to get support for, which is that part of forgetting is actually the weakening of memory traces, that the act of retrieval is a highly competitive process where you've got support from multiple sort of mnemonic traces and ultimately through action, through top-down control and selection of a relevant trace, there might actually be an inhibition or suppression of the traces you, you select against. And he was conducting behavioral work along those lines. And what's interesting about, um, I will get back to your, I promise, your, your question. <laughs> Go <laughs> what's interesting <laughs> about that work is um, this phenomenon of retrieval-induced forgetting, that the act of retrieval can induce forgetting of things you don't retrieve. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it's a, Makes me not want to retrieve as yeah, many things. Well, no. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a real effect. 
Yeah. Um, many labs have seen it, but sometimes you don't see it. And there's a num good number of reports as to failures to actually observe this. And so that, why might that be? And um, Mike and others have put out the idea that, well, sometimes when you don't suffer this kind of competition-driven forgetting, it's because when you're doing that act of selective retrieval of one thing, you're actually replaying all these other the competitors. And you might actually be integrating them with the trace that you were instructed, given your goals, to selectively reactivate. And so that's why you don't actually see forgetting of them. Well, we're now at a point, and this is now closing the loop, we're at a point where um, I think neuroscience can weigh in on this question in a way that behavioral science is it's much harder for behavior alone to um, address. The notion that certain behavioral patterns or expressions are come about because of incidental or you know strategic replay of, of traces that are not what you're asking somebody to express boy that's hard to get a behavioral measure of mm -hmm. right you can ask people like you know for subjective reports of you know how 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 frequently did the the things that would have been the to be forgotten item how frequently did it come did it come to mind but those are kind of not perfect assays well with functional imaging now and with pattern analyses of fMRI data, you can actually witness the replay of a trace. And so you can quantify, given this moment where you're, the subject is supposed to be doing selective retrieval, or they're supposed to be learning something new that happens to overlap with some past event, you can quantify the degree to which the details, the features of that past event actually come to mind. And we've, we've done this um, using multivariate pattern analyses over fMRI data and have shown that um, this replay of an earlier trace in a paradigm where, say, you learn um, stimulus A being associated with stimulus B, and now you learn stimulus A is associated with stimulus C. Well, typically that second AC learning um, creates interference and it causes forgetting of the AB association. Mm -hmm. But we've shown actually that during that AC learning, quantified neural measure of AB event um, is correlated with protection of that AB memory from interference from forgetting. Mm. We've also shown that um, the degree to which that AB event is replayed, people now, and, and your colleague Ali Preston has shown this quite nicely as well, people can now draw inferences. Ah, I understand that B and C are related in some way, and I'm going to generalize what I know about B to C, or I'm going to select C as being relevant to B compared to another stimulus, even though they never co-occurred. And, that and that's determined based on the replay of the original trace? The replay of the, our, our fMRI index, index of, of it. Right. So sure. if, you, if the stimuli are from categories that we know are separable in terms of these um, distributed sort of patterns of, of blood oxygen level dependent sort of fMRI signal, right? So you can, you know, you can separate, say, face patterns from uh, scene patterns. If uh, the memory that you're looking for has these sort of details, like it's got faceness as part of it, the B is a face, you can directly quantify whether or not B was replayed, the strength of its replay from the neural signals themselves and relate that to these um, uh, memory expressions. To make this clear, there's like you can, it's from the just the pure uh, fMRI data, you can predict, for example, like I'm pretty sure that this person is looking at a scene or looking at Paris or looking at someone's face. Like um, 
yeah. those things can now be like associated. And then you say that you can also then make you you are doing something where you attribute like you know Paris and then croissant or maybe something totally random. So right. like Paris and right. I don't know whatever basketball and then. When those things, if you see the reactivation of them, uh, you can then, uh, that actually leads to then the new linking of information. So, right, exactly. So, to the extent, so, so that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, our memories are, in essence, these um, configurations, this binding together of our perceptual and sort of semantic experiences, right? And so, to the extent that the perceptual details of events, when you're looking at and, and, and you know you're having an event like I'm looking at your face right now versus maybe I'm some other experience where I'm looking at a building. We know visual cognitive neuroscience and, uh, um, scientists have used fMRI and pattern analyses, uh, and we know that we can actually distinguish along the ventrovisual uh, uh, surface of the brain. We can distinguish those patterns when somebody is looking at stimulus of type one like a face versus a building. And so memory geeks, you know, we take advantage of this feature coding, if you will, this sort of element coding to say, okay, well, if we can exploit and we can build events that have those elements, then we can look for the replay of those elements. Mm. Memory retrieval is, in essence, a, a propagation back out and a reinstatement in, in this particular case, the ventral visual stream of the visual details of the experience. And so we can leverage that and we can use the replay of the face details of some prior event or the building details of some prior event. And once we've quantified that, we can ask, well, now, given that you you replayed uh, this earlier memory, more so on this on this trial and less so on this other trial, what are the consequences for you in terms of behavior? Well, when you do this replay, you're protecting that memory from forgetting from the new learning. And you're also being able to relate the details of that prior experience with the details of the current moment. And so now you can draw inferences that, well, that face is related to whatever's going on at this moment in time. Interesting. What part of the brain do you think helps us distinguish things that are both very similar and yet makes new kind of assumptions based on these memories? Like you said, if I am recalling, say, for example, I went to a basketball game and I go to another one, there's a lot of overlap on that. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the same kind of visual stimuli will be there, but maybe I go with a, another person and I remember that unique episode. Would you then say that I am probably reactivating all those old memories at the same time and then maybe the new piece of information now gets linked to a, yet a unique episode? You know? Right, right. Well, let me, let me, um, there are a couple of interesting question, uh, points in your question, but one is, which we haven't chased up yet, but I'm, I'm very much interested in, which is if you've got this running replay, that and it's not occurring all the time, but it's a. I think it's occurring quite frequently, such that experiences that are related to the current moment might be being reinstated in some form as that current event is playing out. There should be some consequences. Not only should there might there be benefits, as I've been um, discussing, you might you know be protected against interference-driven uh, forgetting. You might be able to draw novel inferences and understand the relationships between the past and the present. But you might also be more likely to have memory errors. You that replay of the features from some past event, getting stuck into the trace of the moment, might lead you to actually believe that things that had occurred in the past were actually what was going on at this moment in time, or vice versa. And Daphne Shohami's group at Columbia has actually conducted some quite nice work, not really pushing the notion that this replay and this integration of dis disparate events in time 
being being sort of integrated in mind and brain through this replay mechanism, she's shown that if you have a set of earlier experiences and some are associated with a higher value than others, then you have future events and they have partial overlap with particular past events. The degree to which you replay that past event during that current experience results in the uh, generalization of the value that you have associated with that past experience to the new stimuli. In some sense, it's a false memory, right? It's the at this new stimulus, which has no, in, there's no reward or reinforcement signal uh, uh, feedback being experienced at that moment in time. But nevertheless, it's being colored by and, and inheriting mm -hmm. the value of things that were related to it now through memory alone, through this yeah. partial overlap, uh, overlap of our events. And then, Although they don't talk about it in their paper, Susumu Tonagawa's group has kind of looked at this as well, using uh, optogenetic uh, techniques to drive replay in rodents. Um, and so they had a recent paper in Science, I think within the last 12 months or so, where you do contextual fear conditioning at time one. And now, uh, through opto techniques at time two, you replay your memory for the prior context that was associated with fear in the current context, which is a safe context. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have a generalization of fear conditioning to this new context. In essence, the threat associated with that other context, because the memory was replayed, that gets bound to the new context mm -hmm. kind of mistakenly and suddenly the rodent fear is that new context. And I think of these again as the power of reinstatement to bring back to mind details of the past to glue it to the present that has advantages but it also can then give rise to misbindings the advantages being that you can then make you know learn new things right about things that are related right but yeah and this goes to your similarity maybe the probability if you don't have an optogenetic technique right if you're not doing opto the probability you might replay that initial say in the fear in the contextual fear paradigm you can imagine the probability of replaying the the trace is similarity dependent if this context, it's a unique context, but it's kind of similar to this. And if that replays, maybe it's, it might be advantageous to us as organisms to, wow, this context is kind of similar to that other context where it was not so good for me. And you want that kind of generalization, right? And same with sort of uh, uh, extension of positive reward value and things along those lines. Is there a, a difference between passive forgetting and active forgetting? Well, well this is an, it, it, that question is in a nutshell. Um, the 120 years of forgetting theory and discussion of what are the causes of forgetting, right? And so um, uh, scientists have entertained the possibility that there's just kind of passive decay of traces, that nothing else needs to happen, but, uh, and, and nevertheless, um, the representation of a stimulus as time plays out just degrades perhaps through noise process. You know, I, the mechanism is not clear because it's hard to quantify. Yeah. And so, and the, so that's always been the, well, maybe there's something like that that occurs, but boy, it's really hard to index that. The second idea is that, well, it's through interference. It's you never really forget, you never really lose the traces. You're building up additional traces. And so when you think about extinction, we know that extinction actually isn't the elimination of the prior traces, right? We know that it's not a loss of those traces. You see that through spontaneous recovery and many other things, relearning uh, phenomena. And that really what's going on in extinction is it's retroactive interference. 
you've got an initial set of you've got an initial trace or a set of associations you now are building new competing ones and to the extent that you can make those the stronger traces then they're going to win out during the during the retrieval period and so you'll lose your condition response right um, and we I, I think it's unambiguous some will um, argue that you know the interference story could be accounted for by this third mechanism more of an active suppression mechanism or a weakening mechanism but um, but it, from my worldview interference multiple pre, you know multiple existing traces in the system that compete with each other mm -hmm. unambiguously is a cause now with your your question of active versus passive well that that from one perspective that um, when it comes to interference you know we go through life and you can ask yourself whether um, the events that you're, you're you're experiencing are active or passive choices that ultimately lead to, lead to forgetting, mm -hmm. putting that aside, the accumulation of traces and the accumulation of traces that are related to each other result in this competition-dependent interference that yeah. leads to forgetting. And so in the extinction case, you can make the choice. I really want to decrease the accessibility of this condition response, this phobia or whatever that I don't want to express. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to extinguish it. I'm going to purposefully, for whatever that means, <laughs> engage in... Um, experiences that are going to lay down traces that will compete with the memory that I don't want such that I can extinguish it. But I still think it's a really interesting idea that oh, that the that they're also that these all these traces like exist regard like that they're there at some point and it's not a it's not a oh, I think when I when I was growing up or my my worldview at one point was that memories maybe exist but that they can be you know they go away and they what get they or exactly yeah. like a computer would just right. like erase it and then put something right. new on but it seems that the the modern neuroscience tells us that it's that these traces maybe continue to exist but we just put, we fail to access them um, with the with the caveat of on top of the interference story we go back to this notion of memories may well be actively weakened or suppressed this okay. notion of retrieval induced forgetting and in fact. Um, Mike Anderson, there are a number of researchers who are actively working in the space, but Mike has extended that work to this, to your question, which is, well, retrieval-induced forgetting, it, it's goal-directed uh, retrieval, selective retrieval, like goal-directed selective attention. Um, but what about active forgetting? Can I actually have in mind the goal of trying to keep a memory from coming to mind to suppress its reactivation? And in the or prevent it to block it, and if so, are there consequences of that? And so he's got a, a paradigm that he's dubs or the think no think paradigm, where um, in one condition you're cued to think about the past, and in another condition you're cued with you, you get the same cues, but you're instructed do whatever you can. It seems a little. You I was going to say I would not. Do it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel. Uh, uh, it, it, it's on its surface. It's it it kind of like, really? How, how is that going to work? How does that actually work? So they ask you, don't think about, They you give know, you cues and they Don't think about an airplane. To, like, exactly. of course I'm going to think about that. No. Well, and so, right, well, that, so there's the Daniel Wegner work, uh, you know, don't think about you know, white bears or white elephants or big elephants, whatever yeah. it was. And what they find, you know, the Wegner work was that they find that, in fact, by getting that cue, you're more likely to perseverate and think about that. Yeah. In Mike's hands and, and other labs, this cue to try to prevent the trace from coming to mind initially 
People aren't so good at that. The first time you encounter the, a cue for a particular memory, it comes to mind often, but they do this over and over and over again. And eventually, through self-report and other me uh, uh, measures, it appears that people do a decent job of preventing the yeah. memory from coming to mind. And when that occurs, they're more likely to, when they're cued, when they're asked, bring it to mind. I will pay you to remember it. They have a lower probability of remembering mm, it. Yeah, I think a lot of it actually reduces. Mike won't, uh, and some don't believe that this is the entirety of the story, that there may actually be, an, they've advocated for an active sort of inhibitory or uh, control mechanism that weakens traces. I think uh, uh, at least um, a big part of the story maybe not the entire entire story is, it's just another version of retrieval-induced forgetting. When you don't want to think about some painful experience, what do you do? You might bring to mind other competing memories, other competing thoughts. And that, in essence, is an act of selective retrieval that brings these other traces to mind that might weaken the thing you don't want to bring to mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a way for it to um, play out mechanistically with it sounding less uh, magical. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've... I've heard, and I, I, I think I kind of believe, but I'd like to hear your opinion, but um, that sort of our lives and the way that when, when I think about uh, who I am, I, it is mostly based on my memory, based on events that I think happened and those color that the type of person I think I am and what I've done. Uh, do you, and so in some sense then really our memory kind of ex explains and is sort of uh, who I, you define yourself as. Do you believe that, like to what extent do you kind of um, think about how memory really colors and are who we are and how we think about oh, ourselves? Largely, I think our sense ourselves is a sort of, um, it's our autobiographical semantics. Um, and in fact, you know, we often think that we have powerful and distinct memories for individual life events. I think we have episodic memories. I wouldn't be studying otherwise, <laughs> studying it otherwise. But the shelf life of episodic memories, in, I think, is a, a bit more limited in real-world uh, context than um, um, we typically think. So I think much of what we're, um, our understanding of who we are, what our preferences are, in terms of at least our, our, con our subjective or conscious sort of uh, beliefs about our preferences as opposed to implicit preferences that we're, un you know, we're blind to or more blind to. Um, they're grounded in our memory traces, our, you know, pretty much everything about our understanding of what we're good at and bad at are grounded in, in memory. Um, and they're grounded in kind of a semanticized variant of our memory. And so often our, our memories are, you know, they're these stories that eventually have been instantiated in our biology um, that initially started with event traces, right? At least in terms of autobiographical memory uh, for our, our life experiences. But that these event traces, you know, if you think about, there's a story that memories, there, there's, memories get consolidated through time, right? The canonical story is that episodic traces get consolidated through time. I, the mechanisms through which consolidation are thought to occur is a sort of hippocampal dependent replay of patterns out to cortical and subcortical structures. Each of those neurobiological instances of replay are kind of a noisier or a different version of the pattern that was present initially. So what ultimately gets consolidated is the central tendency of these replays, whether they're occurring during sleep, whether they're occurring during these acts of sort of reminiscing about the past, you know, through social interactions or internal sort of reminiscing. So we have all these replays and what we're doing is we're teaching our cortex. Our cortex is building this sort of gist summary 
across those replays of what our personal past was. And sometimes those replays are wrong. I was just doing a colloquium at the University of Pennsylvania and was recounting how um, I hadn't been there, I think, for a decade or so. And it's really great to be back. And, you know, I use episodic memory to sort of bring back to mind sort of experiences very much like this. And, you know, when I was here a decade, you know, a decade ago, I interacted with so-and-so on the second floor of this particular building. And we're good enough friends. He was kind enough during the talk to point out that he wasn't actually at UPenn at that time. And there was no play, no way this had actually occurred. But I had somehow conflated memories and then replayed that and convinced that that was part of my own personal autobiographical story. Well, then he should be the most apologetic. He's like, you know that this happens. So I'm not <laughs> it was all good. By it was good to have that. So, so yeah, so our sense of that, we're, it's clearly grounded in, in our traces, right? In yeah. our memory traces. And so that's capturing both something like the veridical truth of our past, but it's also capturing a lot of error. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of things do you um, do you hope that your research and people in your field will be able to, like what's the new advancements, maybe in technology or maybe in just answering questions that will uh, push forward some sort of like uh, practical use for like stuff that you think um, the research will then inform uh, policy or public uh, um Technology sure, like sure. That. So let me, um, you know, we're a basic neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience lab of um, memory systems, and I, I can, we've been focusing on that, and I could I could dwell there, but um, maybe I'll take this moment to sort of go to the long and the tooth kind of direction. And um, around 2007, 2008, um, the MacArthur Foundation was approached to support an effort to bring together legal theorists, philosophers, neuroscientists, uh, um, judges, and others to begin to wrestle with how neuroscience data is beginning to propagate into the courtroom or how it might eventually um, influence um, legal proceedings over the coming, you know, at some point in the coming decade or so. Um, And it was around that time, late 2008, early 2009, where a couple of things were going on where um, neuroscience technologies were beginning to be used in applied contexts. Um, one was the emergence of two companies that were selling, and one is still um, um, in business, selling fMRI-based lie detection. And the other um, came to the um, international community's attention that there's a state-run forensics lab in the state of Mumbai, India, where they use scalp EEG to read out people's memory states and do, to determine based on EEG data is the claim, whether they have memories for crime-relevant facts, details, and from their claim, whether those memories could only have been acquired if through participating in the act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in late 2008, uh, um, uh, a defendant was convicted of murder, not exclusively, but it seemed largely off of the brain data scalp EEG data. Uh, and then there were these efforts to try to begin to um, introduce fMRI-based lie detection data into U.S. courts. And uh, Nature Neuroscience put out a call to the community and basically said, these technology is progressing, um, beginning to be taken up in the real world and being applied. You know, we, we like to spend time in our labs working on fundamental theoretical problems, the, the working to the brain, but we really need to begin to weigh in on, uh, and it's our responsibility to actually say something about these efforts to um, 
apply neuroscience techniques in the world. And so um, I was fortunate to join the MacArthur Law Neuroscience Project. I've been involved in that over the last um, six or seven years or so. And as part of that, we've done, um, I've, I've done with Martha Fair and Liz Phelps um, and Ben Hutchinson an analysis of the fMRI lie detection literature and sort of concluded that as currently conducted, um, we can't draw any strong conclusions as to whether or not the technique does or does not work, and therefore it seems premature for it to uh, uh, be entered as evidence. And I, I have done expert testimony uh, in one court case uh, to that effect. Um, and then on the memory side, you know, we're um, wrestling with, given the precedent of efforts to use EEG, to say something about memory states, well, bold data fMRI is um, largely a, or very likely a, a much more powerful and sensitive measure. And so it seems like if one were really interested in asking this question, you might want to ask, well, how well can fMRI do to detect memory states? And so we've done some um, work um, uh, first in collaboration with uh, former uh, postdoc Jesse Risman, who's now at UCLA using pattern analyses to ask, if I look at your brain patterns as you're looking at a face, can I read out whether or not you recognize that face as having been encountered before or not? Mm -hmm. It turns out the answer is yes. You, we can be well above chance. We're 75% accurate. And if you, you know, classifiers give you, in essence, some, uh, a probabilistic sort of uh, uh, value for each brain pattern, mm -hmm. uh, a classifier would sort of probabilistically, well, it's more, you know, it, like how sure you are. Uh, how sure the classifier is, right? So now if you say, well, I only would want to use this when the classifier is certain, when the pattern is so powerfully like clearly an expression of, of memory versus not, how well do you do across 16 subjects? Our mean accuracy is 95% accurate. You know? So you can get pretty high. Yeah. But our goal isn't to sort of necessarily, we're not trying to advocate for the methodology. We're trying to assess what are the, for these applied purposes, because undoubtedly there are others who are interested in these questions of can I leverage this to you know read out whether or not somebody has a memory mm -hmm. so we've done subsequent work where well we're starting to ask questions about well what if the memory was practiced to a greater extent versus a lesser extent how old what are the effects of the age of the memory but most critically we've also asked what happens if I tell you that I am trying to read out your memory state and I give you simple instructions about countermeasures and can a subject use a countermeasure to mask their memory states and so we have a paper that we're working towards publication that demonstrates that in fact we can do well above chance when subjects are cooperating but when subjects are using countermeasures suddenly our ability to read out memory state falls to chance mm -hmm. pretty much everybody there are hints that you might be able to get above chance modestly in some but on the whole that tells us Boy, this technology, it's powerful. There's a lot of, across these distributed patterns, there's a tremendous amount of information about the subjective experience of memory that the person uh, may be experiencing versus the perception of novel. And you can leverage that um, uh, to understand, in some sense, to read some, some variant of the person's mind, whether they're remembering or not. But there, there are strict strategies, goals, color and change these patterns such that if you try to think about a real-world application of the science, there are boundary conditions. It's not so clear you'd be able to actually, you, there should be, I, I'm quite cautious in sort of thinking about how one might extend this work, partly um, because of the countermeasure data, but um, also partly because, well, we can read out memory states, 
we have a harder time knowing, reading, distinguishing between somebody recognizing a face and it being a true memory and somebody recognizing a face and it being a false memory. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of sort of interesting applied questions that we've begun to, for us, we're, we're interested in them, begun to sort of chase. Um, and we're also quite cautious and, and want to make clear we don't advocate for this stuff, but sort of an example of sort of the ways in which advances in, in technology and advances in memory theory have allowed us to go from basic science to beginning to wrestle with sort of real-world applications of neuroscience. Awesome. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure yes. to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.